We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Returning to the podcast today, we have award-winning author Sean Cosby, who writes professionally as S.A. Cosby, a Southeast Virginia native who wrote the novel My Darkest Prayer. Sean's sophomore release, The Excellent Blacktop Wasteland, was a runaway hit in 2020, garnering praise and adoration from everyone from Stephen King to Lee Child selling the movie rights and being added to numerous best of the year lists. As kind as he is humble, I first spoke to Sean one week before the book's release, and I'm so excited to have him back on. So I need to ask you not only how you are doing, but also what was that whole experience like? I'm doing all right. Uh, we're, uh, we're on the very tail end of the winter storm of 2021 uh so i'm over here in virginia virginia's weird it, it has a it's sort of a dichotomous existence because sometimes it's a southern state and it's as hot as the dickens and then other times it mis- it mistakes itself for a northeast state and we get piles of snow so we're kind of <laughs> in the middle right now we're getting we're getting ice and mud yeah. um but other than that i'm doing okay uh yeah um the book um it exceeded any expectations I had, you know, um, mm-hmm. the way people have responded to Black Dot Wasteland is just, it's just incredible. It, it's beyond my wildest dreams. And, you know, um, it, it, when I, when I released the book, the, the thing I wanted the most was, I hoped, I just wanted people to like it. I wanted people to enjoy, yeah. you know, the story of Beauregard and, 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 and all those characters. And what happened was people really connected with it in a way I did not, anticipate if i was a really smart writer i would say yeah that was all part of the plan but (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm more like the joker there is no plan i just kind of wrote the book because i thought it'd be a cool story and i mean people i I say this with all you know with all humility and and lack of of ego arrogance i I get messages from people all around the world that read the book you know i've gotten emails from from England and and Australia and Spain and all kinds of places and and people who really get it. I will say this: it's funny because the book is now going to be released in several different countries, and it's always it always cracks me up to see what the translation for the title is. 
Oh yeah. Like in Germany, it's just Black Tile Wasteland. They didn't even try to translate it. They were like, all right, Black Tile Wasteland. Yeah. And in Japan, it's gonna translate to hard road for Americans. I like I love that. I think that's hard great. road for Americans. <laughs> all right, I like that. <laughs> yeah. And but uh, you know, it's just um, like you said, the people you grow up idolizing people in your chosen profession so if you're a basketball player you grew up idolizing michael jordan if mm-hmm. you're a you know if you're a film director uh you grow up idolizing martin scorsese and yeah. you know i grew up idolizing people like stephen king and walter mosley and for them to not only say nice things about the book but in walter's case to reach out and congratulate me it's just yeah. mind-bending you know it's, I, I still can't believe that these people who I, you know, grew up reading their books in study hall or in my case, because mm-hmm. I was a I was an unruly student in in school suspension <laughs> um, that these people know my name and know who I am. And so it's just it's beyond anything I could have imagined. That is so well deserved. And I couldn't be happier for you. It's a great book. I was thrilled when I found out that you sold the rights to it. So let's hope they make a movie. Hope they listen to the earlier podcast where you were suggesting some good people for it so fingers crossed on that for sure the screenwriter that's attached to it is virgil williams he was the uh, co-screenwriter of mudbound so he's an oscar nominated screenwriter that's attached to black tie wasteland so that crossing our fingers on that i got to talk to him yeah and he's just you know it's funny when you write a book again i'm someone who's coming at this from a um i've been writing for a long time and so you know, the things that are happening now are, are sort of, I'm not used to these interactions, so to speak. And so, you know, the idea of somebody taking my book and making it to a movie, he asked me, he's like, are you okay with me? And I said, you know, I'm just amazed that somebody wants to make it into a movie. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with it. I don't feel this sense of proprietoriness toward it that, oh, how dare you? It's like, no, <laughs> y'all want to make my book into a movie by all means, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's just been, it's just been great. Speaking of movies. (laughs) That is perfect. Well, when we spoke last summer, you mentioned that you were already working on your next book. So I know all of your fans want me to ask you, what is next? And are there any new works you'd like to tease out? Well, uh, since you asked, I have a book coming out. It's going to be released July 6th. And maybe push back to the 12th. I'm not sure, but it's going to be in July. It's a crime novel called Razorblade Tears. And it's uh, a revenge novel. It's a standalone, uh, separate from uh, Black Tie Wasteland, but in the same uh, S.A. Cosby literary universe. Uh, <laughs> uh, characters from Black Top are referenced or make appearance is, is in this book. Uh, there's a, a very, um, there's a cameo toward the end of the book that people that like Black Tie Wasteland will recognize. Um, but uh, this is a story of two men, one black, one white, both ex-cons, who live in a small town in southeastern Virginia and their their sons are gay and they get married. And a week after they get married, they're they're killed. And um, the fathers decide to investigate because they don't feel the police are doing their due diligence to investigate the crime. And so these two rough hewn um, men of violence decide to investigate to get revenge for their sons, but also gain some redemption for themselves because neither one of them did a very good job of understanding their sons or accept, accepting who they were and accepting their sexuality. And so it's a story about revenge and redemption and growth. And, um, but also, I, I mean, it's, you know, my, uh, 
<laughs> my brand, I think, is uh, using uh, garden tools and in murderous <laughs> ways. So there's a lot of action and violence in it. Uh, quite a bit of violence, actually. I think it's more violence than in Blacktop. But uh, um, <laughs> it's th- that's all that's all window dressing for the story of these two men trying to learn uh, acceptance and yeah. understanding what you know the, the idea that you know love is love. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I thought it would be interesting to tell that story through the eyes of these men that are uh, are um, out, on the outside of the LGBTQ community, but that they would understand that, you know, no matter who you are, no matter how you identify, you know, you just want to be loved and, and extend that love to somebody else. And so um, that'll be coming out in July. And the movie rights have sold to that, too. Wow. So, you're on a roll. Well, that one sounds really fascinating. Can't wait for that. And I love that it's a story, again, just like Blacktop Wasteland involving fathers, uh, which is kind of perfect because we're talking about good time later on. And the Safties love mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. stories about fathers or father roles, which is kind of a thing that goes mm-hmm. through Thief and all these movies and Drive as well. So really good drive to you that up yeah perfect well when we were coming (laughs) up with a theme to tackle today in your return you knocked it out of the park on your first try with the suggestion neon noir and three films you said you could easily talk about for an hour thief drive and good time we'll take a look at those films one by one in a minute but just leading into the discussion i would love to know what is it about these gorgeous aesthetics of these neon noir movies that you find so compelling? I think it is just the incredible, like you hit the nail on the head, the incredible aesthetic uh, symbolism that exists in these films. There's a certain tone and theme that is incredibly atmospheric and recognizable from the first few moments uh, you know, uh, of, you know, right past during the credits sometimes. Uh, For me, neon noir is the it is the the amalgamation of classic noir tropes and themes uh, and characters with a more modernistic, almost French New Wave uh, mm-hmm. sense of of of, uh, uh, of art direction and cinematography. Uh, you know, of course, uh, certain things that I find that are always present. If you want to ask me what is neon neon noir, it's usually a movie where there are a lot of scenes at night. Um, mm-hmm. primary colors are huge within the cinematography and the art direction. Um, it's always raining. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of rain. Very noir. Uh, it, it, it's very, they're very much films of, of an urban metropolis. They're very much films of a city where the city itself almost becomes a character. Um, you know, the, the, the incredible uh, 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 oppression and also the incredible uh, level of comfortability the characters have within a city landscape. Yes. Um, you can almost feel, you know, the grime and the grit of the city, the smells, the, the feelings. Um, but also that's, you know, juxtaposed with the beauty of the film itself, you know, and, 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 the, and the color palette that is, you know, used throughout the film. And also the color palette is used to denote uh, different emotions within different scenes. Very and true. so, uh, you know, you may have a scene where, um, 
Yeah, it's where a character is angry. So there's a lot of red, uh, you know, uh, red uh, neon signs uh, frame the character's face, or there's a bright uh, red uh, uh, light stoplight that also will encapsulate the two characters talking or, or something like that. You see a lot of that in Drive. And and, um, yeah. and for me, as a, as a film viewer, mm-hmm. I'm just fascinated with the dreamlike quality of the film. Mm-hmm. But that's in contrast to the brutal, visceral nature of these films themselves. You know, you could talk about all three of these movies about violence, about, yeah. you know, what blood looks like under a purple neon sign outside mm-hmm. of a bar. And so to me, it's just an incredible, I love filmmakers who can do that, who can carry, you know, this idea of something beautiful and exquisite and then just smash it into the hard, unrelenting, you know, brutality of the life that these characters choose to lead. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, that's wonderfully put. Well, obviously, feel free to reference these and any films you would like at any time. But I thought it might be best to go through the movies chronologically. And FYI, once we get into the films, I did want to mention that there will be spoilers in the conversation today. Starting with writer-director Michael Mm -hmm. Mann's feature filmmaking debut, Thief from 1981 and starring James Caan in what he considers one of the best two or three movies he's ever made. In the movie, he plays a first-class thief who, along with his partner Jim Belushi, takes down two to three scores a month. But by day, he runs a car dealership, which, of course, provides him with an endless supply of what he calls work cars. A brilliant film with a super cool score by Tangerine Dream, that I just ordered on vinyl. The movie foreshadows the existential (laughs) urban malaise and masculine desire to get out of the rat race that we would see in future works from Manhunter to Heat to Collateral by Michael Mann. I love the Chicago setting. I lived in Chicago when I was a very little girl, so I love that very much. The ensemble cast is fabulous, including the great Tuesday Weld and Chicago's own Dennis Farina, who, just like Chicago's own Jim Belushi, makes his feature debut here. The film feels like part of a one-two punch with Michael Mann's true directorial debut, the Folsom Prison shot TV movie, The Jericho Mile. And it's made even more interesting when you factor in one of his earlier works as an uncredited screenwriter with the terrific Straight Time. Thief is just endlessly watchable. Every time I put it on, I find something new in the movie. So I'm really glad you chose it today. So what are your thoughts on Thief as a work of neon noir from both Man and Midnight Run Against All Odds and Purple Rain cinematographer Donald E. Thorin? Yeah. So as you mentioned, Jericho Mao, and I think, is that a, was that a TV movie with Peter Fonda? I don't remember if Peter Fonda's in it, but it was a TV movie. Yes. Maybe it wasn't Peter Fonda, but it was about a prisoner who was yeah. in jail. He was training to like to run. Yep. I swear to I grew up watching the I, I grew up watching the ABC and the CBS Saturday night movies because we didn't have cable. That's and right. Those yeah. movies would always sh- <laughs> those movies will always show up in their rotation. It was either Gator or White Lightning or it'd be something like Jericho Mile or Crazy Larry, Dirty Mary. Though that that heyday of the 70s gritty new Hollywood style. <laughs> 
Um, I love that. But uh, to talk about Thief, it's interesting because, you know, you look at to, to, as a comparison, you look at Jericho Mile, it is a very basic, as far as cinematography, a very basic mm-hmm. film. It's a TV movie, so it's not a lot of money spent on cinematography. No. Um, it's it's almost a a, a, a washed out uh, a color palette in the film. Whereas yeah. Thief, I, and I, I recently w- watched it the other night just to re- reacquaint myself with it. You know, Michael Mann could be, if you, if you don't overly uh, pay homage account the influence of the French New Wave, Michael Mann is the American father of Neon the War, um, yeah. in my opinion. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you could also throw, you know, Blade Runner as an influence in it as well, although that's leading more into sci-fi noir. Um, but the thing about Thief that I love is, and you can see his early, this is the beginning of his style, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like I said earlier, he uses the colors in the film to such great effect. Um, the city of Chicago, like I said, is a is a character within itself. You know, Frank is he's not unique in the pantheon of noir characters. Uh, you know, he's trying to get out. He's doing the proverbial one last job. That's a, a motif I use in Black Tie Wasteland. But what I love about Frank is he's not this he's not Parker. He's not this automaton. You know, he's a professional, but he's a human being. You know, he loves Mm -hmm. Tuesday Wells character. He has great affection for uh, Oakla, for uh, uh, Willie Nelson Nelson. in a surprise role. (laughs) He loves his 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 partner, Barry. And so he's a character who is who is able to express emotion. And that's what makes the end of Thief so tragic is because he closes himself off on everything. He yeah. calls himself, he, he becomes the automaton. So you mm-hmm. see like, it's almost like seeing um, Parker, what happened to Parker, like what made him that way. Yeah. But as far as the film itself, it's just so beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. It has this, this incredible sense of place and time, but it's not dated. No, and it's surprisingly. The, like I said, it? It's just used. <laughs> No, I watched it the other night and it's, yeah. you know, it's 1981, but there's nothing in the film that that makes it static within no. the time frame of when it was filmed. Mm-mm. You know, you could change the cars and it could be 1999. It could be 2015, you know, yeah. uh, Adams add some cell phones and it would be you could just take the story and make it your own today. But I love that. Again, a lot of the story takes place at night. A lot of the story the night is, I think, emblematic of the mm-hmm. character of Frank, you know, by day, obviously he's just, he owns a car dealership and he also owns a bar and he's a businessman. As he says in the film, he wears $800 suits and $150 gold watch. Yeah. <laughs> but at night is who, when he becomes who he really is, you know, he's this incredible, this incredible thief as his part, you know, you know, eponymous thief. Um, but what man does, and I think what his cinematographer does so well is again, you use, color and tone and uh, lighting to express what's going on within the characters, not just Frank, but Tuesday Wells character, Barry, you know, this is, there's a scene, there's a scene at the house where Frank buys a new house and Barry comes over and his wife comes over and talking about the crime. Mm -hmm. And it's like a scene out of any suburban setting. You know, you could plop that scene into any suburban uh, uh, neighborhood in America in 1981. But then later on, when they're at the building, when they're doing the, the, the main heist of the movie and the, the way the arc, uh, the acetylene torch arcs 
in sand in their Frank's uh, sunglass or the master wearing yes. the way the sparks fly through the air, the way the smoke envelops them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you want to be a, a super uber movie nerd like I am, <laughs> you would look at this way the smoke is enveloping. It's like this is the world that Frank has tipped his toe, dipped his toe in, taking over him, is is, is consuming him. Very um, much. But even from the beginning, that movie has incredible uh, scene. Like when the, the very first scene where he's drilling into the safe, and he's wearing those wraparound uh, uh, goggles, <laughs> yeah. sunglasses, and uh, and the and the uh, the drill is uh, smoking and there's fire and there's sparks, and it it just has such an almost organic feel to the cinematography. It feels at one at same time utilitarian, but also vibrantly alive you know like i said the city everything there's so much smoke and fire and spark and it 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 just creates this sense of 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 the idea that these characters are are dangerous they're on the edge they're not to be trifled with and it's just an incredible for me that you know no one really had done that before i think am i in my i mean i'm probably wrong but it was the first movie i saw where i felt as a viewer that the cinematography was just as important as a story. Very much. And I think you see his influence or his inspiration when you go back and you watch, you mentioned the French New Wave, and I do see a lot of French crime movies that you can tell man used as a touchstone, especially like Jean-Pierre Melville's movies, like Le Circle Rouge and mm-hmm. Bob Le Fambour and Un Flick and all of mm-hmm. those, some of the epic uh, shots of heists going off in those movies. You can kind of see where man saw that and was like, ooh, I want to play with that. And also Rafifi, which was Jules Dassin's movie, which yes. is excellent. One of my favorites. Yes. But, one of my favorite films. Yeah. You mentioned fire. And I thought that was a great observation because you can kind of see that fire is sort of a motif that's used in the film. It's, mm-hmm. it, symbolizes as you said danger and i love how it also symbolizes the work and man is not afraid to show (laughs) like he makes him look cool sure but he also shows just how hard it is to be a thief like i think he says that he was going to have to do a drilling that was going to take 16 to 18 hours like you see the sweat you see the toil you see the fire and I love how at the end, when he sets his whole world on fire figuratively, or as a mm. metaphor, he also does it with his car dealership, mm. that he comes right back to the fire yeah. like he's on the job. Yeah. Fire could be, you know, in, in literary terms, fire can be purification. It could be destruction. Yeah. And so with, with Frank, it's it's both. It you is. know, he looks at doing that job for Leo as a purification. It's like, I do this job and the fire is basically burning away the old Frank. I can have a life with Dave and, and with Tuesday Wells character. I can have Barry over for, for cookouts and, and grilling and stuff like that. And, you know, you as a viewer, you're like, oh, man, Frank, it ain't going to work out like that. No. It ain't going to go down like that. I and know. so the fire, <laughs> the fire ultimately becomes destructive. It becomes, you know, it consumes the life that he wanted. It consumes the life that he thought he, you know, he deserved. And, you know, that last shot of him walking into the night is very, for me as a viewer, when I first watched it as a kid, I was, I was so sad. I felt so bad for him. It's like, you know, all he wanted was his, his wife or his kid. And he just, he wanted to get out. He had a plan to get out. 
you know, and, you know, they're very obvious metaphorical uh, references in the film, too. And again, it's Michael Mann starting to come to his own. And so the scene of the collage where he takes the collage and balls it up and throws it out of the car. Yeah. That's a little, I would say clunky. That's, I don't, it's I don't want to too obvious. Nose. It's yeah. a little obvious for my taste. Yeah. Right. It's like, we get it, Michael. We get it. It's <laughs> over. His, his dream is destroyed. And, it's, and, you know, some of the acting is a little bit over the top. I think the cops of uh, the, the character actors that played the cops when they beaten Frank up yeah. and everything. I think that was a little histrionic just a bit. But, you know, James Kahn gives us really just yeah. very uh, in both in both physical and thematically, he's a very masculine performance. Yep. You know, it's, it's a very it's very it's very much a, a performance of a stereotypical 1970s, 1980s man. Yeah. And so it takes him arguing with Tuesday Weld to finally be open with her. You know, they go to the he's late for the date and yeah. she's arguing. She's mad at him. He's mad at her. They go to get coffee. They're still angry. But through that anger is the only anger is the only way he knows how to communicate with her. And yeah. through that, he tells about his horrific experiences in jail. And, and, you know, it's it's you know, you could say that that's a form of toxic masculinity. I think it's more akin to tragic masculinity. Because Frank, even though he's dangerous and, and violent, he does want to talk to her. Yeah. He does want to try to have some kind of conversation with her. And unfortunately, he just doesn't have, he has never gained the tools. And you see his fragility in several points during the movie when they go to the, uh, they go to the adoption agency. Yeah. And he's very frank with the woman. Like I was locked up and, you know, I, I grew up in the state. I know what this is about. I know what happens to kids here. You know, it, it I think that's what makes James Conn's performance so good. You take another actor who's not as skilled, who's not as maybe as dedicated to the, the idea of this character. And he just becomes a one note tough guy. And James Conn, you know, it, it's such a uh, a departure from Sonny, which is one of my my favorite roles yes. uh, from Godfather. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, where Sonny is just unbridled machismo. You know, there's yep. no backstepping with Sonny. You know, there's no, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a bull in a china shop. And um, with with Frank, you know, he's just he's this really broken man mm-hmm. who, like he says in the film, he has this mental attitude that, you know, it's beyond being tough. It's, it's yeah. being impen- impenetrable. Yep. And the only cracks in that attitude are his love for this, you know, the, the boy, the baby, and his love for Tuesday Well and his affection for Barry, who is like his brother and Okla, who is like his father. And so the themes of fatherhood are very strong in that film. Yeah, very true. And I love how once he tries to bring his collage to life and attain everything, that's when, like, once you start getting what you want, it, it all blows up, especially mm-hmm. for Frank. And it's very mm-hmm. tragic. It also shows Michael Mann's big thing about trying to escape the city, just like in Heat when Robert De Niro's mm-hmm. character wants to escape mm-hmm. and go to New Zealand. Like there's always this fantastical place mm-hmm. you want to go. And in Thief, we see it like they have one glamorous day at the beach where they're all happy and running in the water. Like mm-hmm. they got out of the city, but then they have to go back in. Mm-hmm. And yep, that is their downfall. Yeah. Well- yeah, and it's it's this fatal flaw. And it's a fatal flaw of a lot of main characters that it, mm-hmm. you know, Frank, you know, Frank could 
continue working for Leo, even though Leo screws him over, which is yeah. just like one of the most infuriating parts of the whole movie. Yeah. But he can take the $100,000 and invest it and continue working for Leo. But mm-hmm. he's, he's he has staked his claim that this is my last job. Yep. You know, and that that level again, that's a classic noir, noir trope that you know, these men and women uh who work in the underworld, men and women who do illegal things, but they have their own code and they will yeah. not violate it for anyone. Damn yeah. the consequences. Now that's not really a healthy way to live, but it makes for magnificent drama. You know, it does. And, and, I, and just go back to the idea of the neon noir. Again, like the first scene of them of Thief after they do the job and they're driving through the city and they drive through this parking garage and they're in this like uh, really nice Oldsmobile blue, this blue car and the way the light is shimmering on the cars and the way the light flows across the, uh, the floor and inside that uh, garage. And just, again, the cinematographer, and I can see his influences uh, in other movies, the way he plays with light in that movie and the way he plays with not just yeah, not just neon light, but just regular incandescent light. The way mm-hmm. it it flows over surfaces like liquid lightning. It's yep. amazing. And it's just such a beautiful film to look at. It is. Even the car dealership seems like an oasis with all those neon lights. Just And he basks in it when he walks across there like he's the king uh, of the, mm-hmm. yep, of the line. Yeah. <laughs> just one more thing about it. It's interesting you said that, how the light that shines on him when he's feels like he's the king yeah is significantly different than the light that shines on him afterwards when leo screwed him over yes. all that light is very that dark weird glowing neon light yeah it creates mm-hmm. a mask over him almost whereas before when like you said he's walking across the lot and he's shouting instructions to his workers and he's got his secretary and he's you know he has this life and for a minute as a viewer as somebody who loves, you know, as a writer, I'm like, dang, Frank, just do that. Just, yeah. just be a car salesman. <laughs> You're really good at it. Yes, it's the adrenaline. <laughs> he can't turn it down. I know. It's mm-hmm. heartbreaking. That one exactly. final score thing. It It is the trope of noir that always drags him on down. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. But it's so compelling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. next up, you ch- selected one of my favorite films of the last decade and definitely my favorite film from director Nicholas Winding Refn, 2011's Drive, starring Ryan Gosling as a nameless driver. Just like in Thief, where James Caan had a good cover with his car-related day job, so does Gosling in this as a mix mechanic and a stunt driver for the movies. He supplements both his income and his need for adrenaline, however, as a getaway driver for hire, telling crooks that he'll give them five minutes where he is theirs. But if anything happens on either side of that five, he's gone. Living a mostly solitary existence as a relatively new transplant to L.A., he is a good friend and his boss, played by Brian Cranston, and is in love with his married mother neighbor, Irene. (laughs) Yes, uh, beautifully played by Carrie Mulligan. Uh, He's in love with her from afar, though, because her husband, played by Oscar Isaac, is in jail. When he gets involved in their lives after the man gets out, he winds up bringing his night job home as danger comes home to his door. 
featuring another memorable soundtrack and score by Cliff Martinez and a knockout cast also featuring Albert Brooks, Ron Perlman, and Christina Hendricks. The film, which was obviously inspired by Walter Hill's 1978 movie, The Driver, uses Refn's trademark neon dayglow impressionism, beautifully lensed by cinematographer Newton Thomas Siegel, who did truly mesmerizing things with glowing light and looming shadows as far back as the usual suspects in the 90s. Drive is eye candy to the max from start to finish, save for its shocking and sudden bursts of violence. Clearly, I'm a fan and I know you are too. So Sean, what are your thoughts on Drive? Man, anybody that reads Blacktown Wasteland can obviously see uh, influences of Drive. Um, not just the not just the movie, but the book by John Salas. But um, the, you know, the Drive is one of my favorite movies. Drive is yeah. like on my top ten list of all time. I, I love that film, and like you said, it's that day glow, technicolor, bubblegum, yeah. uh, you know, exuberance in the film in, in the cinematography that masks this deep, fetid, rotting corruption that yeah. exists throughout the film. Um, you know, the driver played by Ryan Gosling, you know, he's different than Frank. He's more he's like this character who exists and he's got moments of humanity. You know, he's this he's this monster that has brief flashes of humanity. And so you yeah. see him playing with uh, with his neighbor and her little boy and he's driving him through the uh, through the aqueducts uh, mm-hmm. in L.A. It's like, oh, that's so nice. And, and then, like, you know, next thing he's stomping somebody to death in the elevator. Yeah. And, um, but for me, <laughs> but for me, this movie is probably the best representation of what I think of when I think of neon noir. You know, it, it brings together all of the different different elements that I, I I said earlier. It's you know color palette, cinematography, art direction, the uh, importance of color in you know pursuant to the different emotions of the characters, uh, the beautiful. You know, it looks like a moving uh, painting. It's a beautiful film to look at. Um, yeah. And again, a lot of the night film filming or like night scenes again, are emblematic of the duality of the character, of the main character. You know, during the day, he's a stunt man. He's driving for the mm-hmm. movies. He's wearing a big, dumb plastic mask. But at night, he's this different creature, this almost this animal that um, slithers off his human skin. Yeah. You know, it's something very reptilian in Gosling's performance. And again, it just really emphasizes that incredible Contra- contrast between the actions of the character and the the beauty of the film and the filmmaking and the cinematography. You know, there's a scene in Drive where uh, Ryan Gosling's character uh, goes into, a, I think it's a strip club, and he has a hammer, but he's yeah. taking the head off the hammer. So he's a stick in one hand and a hammerhead in his pocket. And he puts it on and he takes a bullet. He's basically going to nail this bullet into this dude's mouth. Yeah. And that scene is so violent and so uh, a lot of people focus on the um, on the elevator scene because it's so gory. Mm-hmm. But that scene, it's it takes it takes a special kind of person. You can see somebody snapping and going crazy and beating somebody to death in the elevator. I, I think there's almost a, a, a the average person has more. Uh, now I wouldn't say identify with that, but you can understand that a little more in so far as the characterization in the movie. It's a whole nother level to nail a bullet in somebody's mouth. And Gosling does it with such ice cold precision. 
mm-hmm. you know, and again, the way the light, you know, the way the light plays off his eyes in that scene. Yeah. Um, the way it is, the way his face is framed in that scene, where it's almost just his face, you hear his hairline, just see his, he has really striking eyes anyway. So he's really, but they're crazed. You know, there's mm-hmm. madness behind those eyes. And, you know, that, like I said, that rotten core, that, 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 you know, that existential disintegration that's going on inside him. But it's masked by how beautiful, you know, the film is. You know, Southern California is one of my favorite places to see settings in a movie. I yep. love seeing it uh, uh, brought to life. And, you know, films like uh, Inherent Vice, Heat, and play, movies like that, where it's, it's again, it becomes a character in the movie. Yeah. But for me, Drive, Drive makes Southern California terrifying. It's this cold and distant place that it's like a beautiful piece of fruit. You know, it's like a beautiful apple that's full of worms. And Redfin is, is not one of my favorite directors, um, but he is very much a, a, a practitioner of the aesthetics of neon noir. You know, um, I yeah. think he, I think he tends to go beyond the confines of a noir story into almost a, a, a grand gounal, you know, mm-hmm. like only God forgives is almost horror. It's, it's almost horror. It movie, really is. You yeah. know, and, 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 and then of course, the neon demon is a horror. Yep. Um, but he has an, an incredible eye and he works with cinematographers who have an incredible eye for, you know, the dissemination of color and how to make it work with the characters and the setting that you have. Um, it's just, like I said, it's just incredible pastoral scenes in Drive and just the the way everything just works together. There's almost like this internal bioluminescence that comes off of like his jacket, the scorpion logo on the jacket and the, 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 the reflection of the, uh, in the uh, rims of the cars on the tires. Uh, just everything has this incredible internal illumination. Like I said, again, that is con- a contradiction to the, yeah. the moral decay of the characters. I think you really hit the nail on the head when you were talking about this animal instinct that comes out in him and how it does border on the horror Mm -hmm. and the colors. Mm -hmm. One thing that drive looks like, it's almost like we're stuck in a fish aquarium because it's like we feel like we're trapped as beautiful as it is. But you you look around and you see the neon lights that Mm -hmm. you get in a neon fish aquarium, all the colors. But with that Mm -hmm. scorpion on his jacket, you know, the old story, he can't escape his nature and he is a scorpion. (laughs) And what's interesting is in the elevator, I think one of the only people that can really temper him besides Brian Cranston to an extent would be Irene. Mm -hmm. And what I love about the elevator scene Mm -hmm. is he reaches behind himself because he knows the other man in the elevator is up to no good and wants to kill them. And actually Mm -hmm. like pushes her gently into the corner like to put his Mm -hmm. body and then when he turns around to kiss her I mean everybody oh it's romantic and it's like it is but he's also putting his body Mm -hmm. in to block the man yeah and so I think Mm -hmm. that sequence in 
the strip club, which is horrifying. I agree. But what's interesting in the elevator, you mostly see Irene's reaction or it kind of cuts away or we see from mm. below as his boot is coming down and he is going way overboard and stopping mm. this guy's face in. But in the strip club, there is nobody to temper him. All he is thinking mm. is, you know, this guy gave a bullet to Irene's son and he wants to do whatever mm. he has to. And so he takes it. And obviously there's a little bit of glee there, which is very, very unsettling. And you see a little bit of glee at the end when he is going to, um, mm -hmm. yeah, get Ron Perlman. Spoiler alert, belated spoiler alert. <laughs> but uh, yes, so it, it's a very it's been out. It's been out like 11 years. It's okay. Yes. Oh, you would be surprised. <laughs> I say, it's been out 10 years. Mad. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, uh, you such know, a it's good funny, movie. Like, uh, it's funny you were talking about, I think Gosling doesn't get enough credit for that performance. No. Uh, there's an old um, George or Orwell quote, and I can't remember it verbatim, but it's something about we sleep comfortably in our beds because we're safe in the knowledge that there are men of violence ready to bring ready to, justice yes. to our enemies or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's Ryan Gosling's character. When he kisses Irene in that elevator, it's like know, goodbye. I often think about her, mo what does she feel at that moment? Yeah. You know, on the one hand, it's like the first four stomps are like, oh, he's protecting us. Yes. Then the other, the next 25, like, oh, he's crazy. <laughs> yeah. This dude's out of his fucking mind. And yes. I love him. I care about him. Yeah. You know, he's, he's handsome. He's smart. He's fun to be around. My son likes him. Oh, but by the way, he stomped the dude's head into, into meat. And yes. I think there is this idea of people like that. I mean, obviously, a lot of times in noir films, it's men as the protagonists. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, I think that there are people who aren't morally flexible, to quote uh, Gross Point Blank. Uh, yeah, moral flexibility, <laughs> yes. Moral flexibility. They have a certain moral flexibility. And I think, you know, we run across those kind of people every day. We just, they're just not killers. You know, there are people that you mm -hmm. work with in your job. There are people that are in your family, people that you know who have... Uh, the ability to tweak their morals to suit a situation. And I think with Irene, she comes to a decision uh, I, that I don't care how much he's trying to protect us. Yeah. His protection is too dangerous. It is. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's, and again, like with Frank, it's the loss of the life that he wants, the idealized you know, version of the life that he thinks he wants. Once he loses that, or really, in, in, in the case of Drive, he realizes he's never going to have it. Mm -hmm. Now all bets are off. Now yes. I, I am the monster that you think I am. You yeah. know, and, it, and it, it's interesting. Is he the monster? And was he play acting as this loving, caring person? Or is he a loving, caring person who now just accepts this identity as a monster. And I don't think the film tries to answer that question. I'm fascinated by it as, as a film watcher, uh, as yeah. somebody who, I, you know, I try to answer it in my writing a lot. I'm, I'm fascinated by identity. Um, but man, um, you know, it's funny. I watched, uh, after drive, I was like, man, I can't wait for, uh, you know, the next uh, Nicholas Winding Redfern film. And then like, you know, uh, Only <laughs> God, God forgives come out. And I'm like, oh, he needs a hug or something. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And, and I love horror films. I'm a, I'm a horror fan, but I do think, and it's a, again, it's a beautiful looking film, which makes it even that more horrific. 
because mm-hmm. the cinematography, you know, it's in Thailand, which, you know, I think Asian cinema took the underpinnings of the French New Wave and the American Neon Noir movement and then just exploded it. You know, if you watch Asian cinema, if you watch Old Boy, if you watch Infernal Affairs, if you watch any of those, uh, you know, even the work of, uh, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, if you watch those films, they've taken Neon Noir and turned it up to 11. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it it's, every scene is saturated with, you know, you know, uh, pop sugar, bubble gum colors, uh, you know, pinks and reds and greens and blues are, are, are ever present throughout those yeah. films. Um, and, and so Nicholas Redfern setting. Too. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, even like, even like John Woo to exactly. a certain extent does that, yep. especially in the killer, uh, yeah. you know, which is, you know, that's a hybrid of neon noir and, you know, uh, um, you know, Hong Kong action films, Bullet it's such ballet. a great film. I'm not going to get to talking about it. It's not going to start talking about that. But yeah. The Killer is one. Oh, my God. The Killer is. And you know what's funny about The Killer? I'm going to go back to Drive in a second. But what's funny about The Killer is uh, 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 Chow Yun-Fat's character in that. It's so different than the traditional noir male protagonist. Yep. He's a killer. But he's this person of empathy yeah. and charity. And and, and 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 he respects the police officer that's chasing him down. You know, mm-hmm. he, most of the movie is him trying to make up for blinding this poor girl, this woman. And so I think it's interesting to see the traditional noir protagonist through the eyes of someone like John Woo or through the eyes of someone like uh, uh, Bong Soo Ho or someone like that, where they don't have the uh, baggage mm-hmm. of the American Western uh, hero. And I think that's incredibly interesting. But yeah, I watched uh, <laughs> I watched Only God Can Forgive, and I was like, oh man, yeah, Nicholas, you, you need to talk to somebody. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. But I think, uh, yeah, because he's from you know Denmark no, ahead, and bringing yeah bringing his own perspective to America, and so the outsider's perspective. But I love what you were bringing up because psychology always fascinates me as well. And Ruffin said he was particularly always drawn to characters who don't talk very much or don't say much because he said then they seem Mm -hmm. more dangerous and more mysterious and you want to know more. And he said the magic Mm -hmm. is, of course, not answering those questions. And I think that's uh, indicative oh, yeah. of what what he did in Drive for sure, yeah. Drive is a film I watch. I, I own the Blu-ray, but I, I watch it. Sometimes it comes on, uh, but I I watch Drive whenever it comes on. I've seen it. I think I've seen Me it uh, more than ten times. <laughs> yeah. It's up there with Pulp Fiction because Pulp Fiction is a movie I know I've seen more than more than ten times. But um, it's just one of those. It's the, and it's also one of the movies I recommend to most of people. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, MC Dry, oh, you've got to watch this. You've got to yeah. watch this. And I, I think it was Redfin at his most restrained. Um, but again, Drive, and it's funny that Gosling went on to star in the uh, Blade Runner sequel mm-hmm. because Drive is the most, to me, is is the, the closest to Blade Runner without being a sci-fi movie. It's the closest yeah. film in to me in tone and cinematography to Blade Runner. And, and Blade Runner is a part of that, you know, again, sci-fi world, but it's still a, for all of its sci-fi underpinnings and trappings, it's a neon, it's a noir, it's a noir story, both Blade Runner and the sequel. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting, Gosling has kind of found 
he he finds he he's really good at those kind of roles. Um, yeah. He's really great at great at mining that quiet character that has, you know, still waters run deep and, and all that. And so I think it's interesting that he finds those roles and he sees them. I mean, I know Blade Runner 2049 wasn't a great commercial hit, but I loved it. I thought it was a magnificent film. I thought it was incredibly poignant. And I, I thought it was, again, the cinematography is ridiculous. It's incredibly <laughs> beautiful to look at. Um, but, you know, Redfern is one of those guys, like I said, because he's from uh, from the Netherlands or from Den- I'm sorry, from Denmark, uh, he does have an outsider's point of view when it comes yep. to the way they view cinema. And, and that whole, you know, that Denmark uh, uh, cinema explosion in the early 2000s, there's a lot of interesting filmmakers that come from that school mm-hmm. and they all do a lot of different things with color and tone. And the way their films are shot is very interesting. Yeah. What's really interesting about Ruffin is he almost went against that Dogma 95 style of filmmaking, which was to take away artifice and to, you know, no Mm -hmm. uh, external sets. And there were all these crazy rules that they came up with. And I mean, wonderful filmmakers Mm -hmm. came out of it. Lars von Trier and Suzanne Beer and all these great filmmakers. But Refn kind of went his own way, sort of a Hollywood style thing that he did. And I love his playfulness with color. Um, The way that Mm -hmm. he uses, the film was actually shot in sequence in Drive. And I think he- Yeah, chronological order. Yes. And he actually said he doesn't really storyboard. He just thinks on the fly, which is amazing because it also, like you were talking about primary colors, the movie uses blues in a very interesting way, kind of um, throughout. It's a motif that's used and the way it holds Irene mm-hmm. and the driver in a two shot is interesting, even when they're at the table mm-hmm. with the husband and the son. I mean, there's so much visual interest in every single frame of this movie. But I think like you were talking about only God forgives and stuff. I think one of the reasons why Drive worked so well is he didn't write it. It was written by, you know, Hossein mm-hmm. Amini. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that he has so many ideas and I think sometimes, Mm -hmm. yeah, he doesn't know how to express himself that way. So I do think that I think translating it, translating someone's (laughs) work worked well for him. Yeah. As a writer, I'll be the first one to admit a good editor is, is a really (laughs) good card to have in your pocket. Um, You know, I I had a, there's a scene uh, just to, uh, really quickly emphasize that there was a the way the book that I have Raised Blade Tears the book that's coming out this year the way that book ends in print is way different than it was in the uh, initial draft and the initial draft <laughs> ended in this very uh, it ended in this very uh, Titus Andronicus way I'll just leave it at that oh, wow. and <laughs> my editor was like yeah it was it was dark oh gosh it was very I mean I write dark stuff anyway but it was way dark it was Midnight in my chef. And um, <laughs> <laughs> my editor was like, we don't want to leave people with this horrible taste in their mouth. Uh-huh. You know, you've built this really good book, these really interesting characters. And even though the characters who are uh, dispatched probably deserve it, we don't want to leave people with this bitter taste in their mouth about these characters they've grown to love. And I think with, you know, not to make this a, a referendum on, 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 on reference, but no. I think 
he because you know his next two movies he wrote there's nobody there kind of tapping him on the shoulder and like yes. let's scale it back up <laughs> yeah exactly i mean i think visually he's an incredibly you know oh, he yes. reminds me of like i said uh he reminds me of like i said filmmakers that i really like like you you mentioned von trier but wim wenders i'm really a big fan of his. oh i love and there's a sense of the way he films yeah there's a way he films stuff that's very similar to that um he's also um i'm gonna bring up a movie real quick before we move on to to good time um there's another film and god forgive me i cannot remember the the director's name or the writer but it's, it's a little known film it's a little cult film called uh uh trouble in mind and it stars Chris Christopherson and Genevieve Bourgeois. Um, the 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 uh, drag performer Divine is in it. Uh, it's one of Joe Moore. Uh, Joe. Uh, oh, um, Alan Rudolph. Uh, uh, Joe Morris's first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of Joe Morris's first films. Uh, Joe, uh, not Joe Morris. Um, oh God, what's Joe Morton. Name? It's an, uh, it'll come back. Joe Morton, thank you. Uh, Keith Carradine is in it. Daryl Hannah's in it. There's a lot of good actors and actresses in this film. And that, to me, is another film that is a pure distillation of the idea of neon noir. You know, oh, the wow. city is called Rain City, for God's sake. It, it <laughs> rains all the time. It's, a, it's an unnamed city. You, and you, you know, it, and it's, it's set. You don't know where exactly it's set. It's almost, it borders on sci-fi because it's, it doesn't say it's in America or Canada or anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's an unnamed uh, nation, and the city's called Rain City, but it's not the real name of the city. And Chris Christopherson is a former cop who went to prison uh, for murder because he protected Genevieve Bourgeois, Bourgeois, who owns this diner, and uh, Divine plays the local crime boss, and and Keith Carradine's character. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen the film, Keith Carradine character, he goes through this incredible metamorphosis. He he comes into town, him and uh, Daryl Hannah, and they've got a baby together. He's trying to find work and he ends up being a criminal and getting in with the underworld. But it, it, it's like I said, it's a, it's a cult film. It's not it's mm-hmm. not high cinema by any means, but it's in, it's endlessly fascinating to look at. The the and again, it takes all, all the ideas of the neon noir aesthetic and just just leans into them a hundred percent just wholeheartedly i mean the plot is sort of convoluted but (laughs) the cinematography the set the art direction yeah it's way convoluted i it's it's a lot i couldn't even try to explain it here but um and again i think that filmmaker him and redford have a a similarity in style also have a similarity in no one not going to the excess to an extent with their filmmaking Uh and and, and, you know and hey you're a director and you're a filmmaker you should be able to bring your vision to the screen but at the same time it should be somewhat more coherent and sometimes you do need somebody to kind of tap you on the shoulder and, and stop you from uh falling into your uh in, 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 in indulging your worst tendencies but uh, no, yeah, if you ever, anybody listening, if you haven't seen it, check out, try to find uh, Trouble in Mind. It's a real oddball, interesting uh, film. I'm going to have to check that out. Listening to you talk about it reminded me of another sort of neon noir movie, but one that's more like a mood. And I don't really think it works, but it's fascinating to look at and experience <laughs> is Spring Breakers, which is very neon. It's very pink, the colors of Miami. I did not love this movie at Mm -hmm. all, but it is a gorgeous (laughs) film to look at and it's insane. I mean, like it doesn't make sense really from one scene to the next. It's very bizarre, but mm -hmm. it's 
so neon. So it's a beautiful train wreck. It is a beautiful train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> and there are people that have like taken up the mantle of this movie, kind of like showgirls. And they're like, it's a masterpiece. And I just don't see it like that. But I, <laughs> I applaud their I applaud their dedication. I think. <laughs> yes. So if you're in the neon mood and you want to like have it on in the background, go for it is what I'm saying. Yeah. But I'm going to look for trouble in mind. Thank you for recommending that. It's a beautiful, like I said, it doesn't have the bright, bright colors, uh-huh. but it has this, this new, it, it's funny because in the film, there are bursts of colors, you know, yeah. it, it'll be really dark and, 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 and monochrome. And then boom, they're at this supper club, cabaret club where the, the, the singer has on a bright blue wig and, you know, there's a, a, a reddish light being shown on her and then it's monochrome monochrome scene mon- and then boom you see Keith Carradine's character and he's wearing like this hyper stylized pompadour that's like because he's blonde he's greased it it's almost golden like this golden crown um it's just it's a wild film I, again I'm not saying it's great but it's one of those films that I, I just I have a special place in my heart for it the filmmakers really you could tell they really threw everything they had at it. They like, you know, if we're going out, we're going out swinging. And Chris Christopherson, who's an underrated actor, in my opinion, does a really good job. Uh, I think it's a Canadian production because Janine Bourgeois is in it. But yeah, they they go out. They like I said, they go all out for it. Um, and before we move on to good time, you were talking about Spring Breakers. I'll tell you a film that is again, it, it's sort of in the middle ground between Drive. It exists in that. In that uh, in that demilitarized zone between films like Drive <laughs> and films like Good Time, uh, it's a uh, Greg Akari's uh, 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 Doom Generation. Oh, Greg Doom Akari's Doom Generation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Rose yeah. McGowan, uh, yes. James Dart, James Duvall. Uh, I can't think of the other gentleman's name, but it's it, it, and again, that's a film that is neon noir but on the border of american new wave it has a really punk sensibility mm-hmm. um really it's a story it's a very shoestring plot it, it's barely a plot it's yeah. more of a bunch of scenes cut together um incredibly dark and violent uh so yes. that's not your thing very you may not want to watch it but uh but also just greg Akari is somebody who uses he doesn't use light so much as reflection yeah. and shadow and, and that 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 dark bluish black tone, you know the the neon mm. light of a of a gas station, you know the uh, the, the the bright uh, fluorescent lights of a of a, a grocery store at three o'clock in the morning, and and I love that kind of filmmaking. I love that kind of tone to a film. Uh, I think partly because I I grew up in an area with <laughs> we had a lot of gas stations, and there's a sense of <laughs> of of uh, just anything can happen. Yeah. at that time of night so that's another film i wanted to mention perfect yeah very dark, up, if you're not into yeah you're not, if you yeah very dark if you're not into it yeah avoid the doom generation bringing up the blue black lighting kind of reminded me of an earlier point you made talking about him vendors and the way he uses through his cinematographer uh robbie muller on paris texas 
uh, the way he uses green mm -hmm. is just amazing. And it kind of mm -hmm. is a nice lead in mm -hmm. to the Safties who use their own dark <laughs> lighting and also a bright, like kind of fluorescent lighting uh, when things are really stressful. And mm -hmm. they also seem to be drawn mm -hmm. to a reddish lighting as well. So they play with light very intriguingly throughout the third film that you have chosen today is the newest one of the lot, the viscerally thrilling Safdie Brothers stunner Good Time from 2017. It was written by Josh Safdie and Ronald Bronstein and edited by Bronstein and Benny Safdie and directed by both Josh and Benny Safdie. The film features a starring turn, a knockout turn by Robert Pattinson as Connie Nikas, a never-do-well, low-level New York crook who, along with his beloved, developmentally disabled brother Nick, played by Benny Safdie, rob a bank for $65,000 at the beginning of the movie in a masterful, almost prologue of sorts, nearly getting away with the crime until the pink reddish dye pack explodes like a bomb that has far-reaching effects. After Nick is arrested and thrown in jail, Connie will do whatever it takes to get his brother back on the street. With another pulsing score from 1-0 Tricks Point Never, great music is kind of another element of all these neon noir movies. The same uh, composer also did the score to their 2019 smash Uncut Gems. Good Time foreshadows the Adam Sandler hit Uncut Gems and also shows you just what the Safties are capable of with their particular brand of stressful Casavetes meets Scorsese meets a lot of different people near what I like to call heart attack noir. Um, it's a great thriller. It's stressful. It's like taking a stress test, just like Uncut Gems by the end of the movie. I was swearing like a trucker <laughs> and I didn't even realize it. I was like screaming at the TV. It was crazy. I love the film. Good time. It played even better for me on this revisit. In fact, because I'm a sucker for a sibling angle and its surprising touches of humanism as much as I love Uncut Gems, this is my favorite Safdie movie. So Sean, what are your thoughts on Good Time and those talented Safdies? Man, Good Time is, an, like you said, you, you hit the name on the head. It's nail on the head. It's distressing. It's, it's anxiety-inducing. Yeah. It's grimy. It's like a film I want to take a shower after I watch it. It's just, yes. you know, uh, <laughs> Robert Pattinson gives, like I said, I said it on Twitter the other day. I said he all through this movie you could tell you could see in his head he was just saying fuck Edward Cullen Cullen fuck Edward yes. Cullen I've got to, <laughs> I'm gonna do everything I can to separate myself from that character and he does I mean yep. you know Connie is just this he wears the gutter grit and this and slime almost as a as a, as a badge of honor he's yeah you know he, we don't understand we're never told why he robs the bank um but the no. Safties do a lot that push the boundaries of like the neon noir aesthetic like we've been talking about mm -hmm. uh like you were mentioning the soundtrack and and of course it's interesting like in thief it's a soundtrack that's partly the seven it, it still has one foot in the 70s so it's bluesy the chicago blues the uh, uh the instrumental r&b sort of bluesy soundtrack 
Uh, there are scenes in Thief where it's a synth pop sort of soundtrack. Yeah. Sort of soundtrack. Uh, of course, Drive embraces all of that. And I think synth and synthesizers and synth pop are another aspect we were talking about Neon Noir film. Perfect, uh, yeah. Again, it doesn't date it. It just gives it a certain particular type of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, the Safties take that and they add like a sort of dissonance to it. So it's yes. a synthesizer or it's, it's EDM on top, but underneath that is very, uh, you know, uh, a, a sort of discord of sounds. And so it almost like they incorporate um, the sounds of New York City in the soundtrack. It's you know, it sounds like this break squealing. And, yeah, like you're getting a contact high yeah. of New York City so, through it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And having visited New York a lot in the past, like before the pandemic, in the past two years before the pandemic, and it really is a, it's, it's funny because Good Time is neon noir in so much as the aesthetic and cinematography. Um, anybody seen the film, the scene at the amusement park, you yes. know, with the way the light and the black light plays against Connie and, and, and Ray and against the, 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 the uh, security guards, you know, and, and his cap with the word security across it and, and all of that. But earlier in the film, you were talking about the die pack. The Sassies do something where not only is the cinematography neon war influence, but the actual physical set, the yeah. die pack exploding, um, uh, Connie and, and uh, Ray, I'm mean, not Ray, excuse me, Connie and Nick wearing, uh, you know, construction worker day glow vests yeah. to, you know, as a part of their uh, costume, um, you know, uh, the way uh, Ray, the light of the TV in the scene where he goes to the lady's house and in the grossest scene in the movie, by far, when he comes on to that little girl. Yeah. When I say little girl, she's 16, but she's 16. And it's like, yeah. he, and you know, he hurt what's happening in the movie is his face comes up on the screen uh, at a news reporter. He's one as a bank robber. Yeah. Right, and to distract her, he kisses her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's a teenager, she's 16, but she's right on the cusp of being an adult. And I'm not talking about so much the sexual implications, but I'm talking about her idea of, you know, she's a, like a lot of kids are, were bored and, you know, yeah. just starting to find herself. And mm-hmm. so, she, you know, unfortunately, she gets involved with the worst people at the worst time in her life to, find, to start finding herself. Um, but yeah, the, they do an incredible thing with color and light. Um, and I saw it in Uncut, Uncut Gems as well. Like you said, it's almost like they use these fluorescent, bright, intense lights. Yeah. And you see every pore on Robert Pattinson's face. You see the sweat in Nikki's face. It's just so, it's like how everybody looks terrible under a fluorescent light. You never want to look at yourself in a mirror under a fluorescent yeah. light. Ooh. Well, they do this for the entirety of their film. Mm-hmm. You know, they hold this horrible mirror up to their characters and you can almost see the again, the moral decay, the the, you know, the vicissitudes of their heart on their faces, you know, right. and, and the light shines on them and shows it to a startling degree. Um, mm-hmm. And again, because this movie takes place over like 24 to 48 hours, a lot of it's at night, a lot of it, again, plays with light and shadow and darkness. And the darker the movie gets uh, is also plays in conjunction with the darker Connie's yeah. actions get. Yeah. Um, but uh, like also the Safties do, they're really tackling a lot of different things in this film at one time. They um, are. And, and they're ta- yeah. tackling things 
like neon noir for the most part and some of the French New Wave, it's a very um they're not films about social issues. They're films about no, the existential a man on a mission. Uh, the existential right, the existential battle of the main character yeah. to be good yeah. versus being evil or to give in to their darker impulses or so on and so forth. Um the Safis are talking a lot about social issues in yeah. good time, from the fact that Connie and Nikki use uh, masks that look like African Americans. Yeah. Their masks are rubber African American molded masks. Um, mm-hmm. To the fact that at toward the end of the movie, um, he and this character named Ray, and you got to watch the movie to figure out who Ray is. But he and Ray beat up the security guard, and Connie puts the security guard's outfit on. Yeah, because the security guard is called the police, and so the police arrive, and here's this white guy wearing yeah. the security outfit that obviously doesn't fit him. You no. know, his shirt's not tucked in. He can't button it all the way. But because he's a, a, a white man wearing a security hat, they just take his word for it. And they end up arresting the young the girl. girl, Crystal, who's African-American. Yeah. Yeah. And they arrest the poor security guard, which <laughs> I have a dark sense of humor. That's the funniest part of the movie to me. They, oh, really? So, that so people who haven't seen the film. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, well, not no, even being beaten up. Not even being beaten up. Oh, okay. I thought you meant um, the acid they, thing. And after they, yeah, they basically they go to this amusement park to find some acid because the whole point of music yeah. is is Connie wants to get his brother out on bail, and yep. he meets this guy Ray, and Ray's like, "Yeah, hey, I was running from the police. I've got some acid. It's worth like X amount of dollars. We got to go to this amusement park. That's why I stashed it." And after they have the confrontation with the security guard, Ray makes him drink some of the LSD so he won't be able to identify them. And the poor guy like flips the hell out. And it's like, I, I don't want to laugh, but it's like, oh my God, <laughs> this is so horrible. You're yeah. almost laughing as a, a defense. And, and, it, <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, this poor dude. But, uh, you know, Robert Pattinson, I was never pulling for him during the whole movie. He does a real guy, a good job of, I get very close to the edge of feeling empathy for Connie. Mm-hmm. And then I don't because because he's Connie is the most interesting type of character to me. He's so frustrating because you can tell he's not completely he's not stupid. No. You know, he's very fast on his feet. He knows how to think and, and operate quickly, but he just won't take the next step to actually getting out from under whatever it is that they're involving. And then he drags his poor brother along. And so I never felt like I was pulling for him, but I was fascinated to see his downward spiral. And I think it's interesting uh, from a cinematography aspect that when he finally is caught, you know, we do it from a distance. You see it from a balcony and he doesn't have the opportunity because of the way it's, the scene is, is structured, he can't talk his way out of it. He can't no. run his way out of it. He can't game his way out of it. He's caught. He's, it's very much like a rat in a, in a maze. Yep. Yeah. And, and also, it takes place in the bright morning sun. And so you get to see him at his most ragged. You know, his hair's yeah. dyed, but it's, it's all chopped up looking. He looks haggard and weathered and worn out. And he's a man at the end of his rope. But, you know, he also did all this because of his brother. Now, the the, con- the converse to that would be, well, you know, if you had to drag your brother along to this bank robber, he wouldn't be in, in trouble anyway. That's but, a really you know, good point. If, you know, yeah. that's and so, so Connie, I think he does care about his brother ultimately. Yes. But again, he also 
part of him holding on to Nick, and I think this is great to examine, like you said, that sibling relationship. He holds on to Nick because he's kind of afraid to be on his own. You know, he I doesn't want to be by himself. His yeah. desperation for freeing Nick is not so much just I want to get Nick out of jail. It's I can't be alone. I can't be by myself. And yeah. I think that's fascinating. But I think like the Safties, like you said, they do. It's, it's very much heart attack noir. It's, but they're uh, again, their cinematography. You can tell that they're very much influenced by Scorsese and De Palma and, and people mm-hmm. like that. Maybe more Scorsese and Cassavetes than De Palma. Because yeah. there's a very there's a workman type. Uh, there's a workman type quality to the way their shots are set. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminded me of a Dog Day Afternoon, you know, yeah, or, or uh, a film like that. Uh, where Blue Mad is a big influence it, because realism is a yes. Huge thing. Oh God, it's almost like hyper realism in the Safties or like and going back to neo realism a little bit, which I know is another influence of theirs. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and I think it's interesting because whereas Lumet is all about the monochromatic color scheme, you know. Yeah. Again, it's funny. Classic noir is the city is evil, the people are evil, everything's horrible, and we're all gonna die. And <laughs> neon noir is the city is evil, but look how pretty it is. Let's you know? set it in an amusement park. Yes, exactly. It's exactly. Like they chose. Exactly. Or let's the city have is, <laughs> the, yeah. Let's have him dye his hair blonde and bright and exactly. Put, yeah. The yes. city's awful and it's horrible, but look at the beautiful colors, you know, look at the flowers, so to speak. And I think that's you could say that about all three of the movies we talked about or other movies that fall in that neon noir aesthetic. Um, you know, you took at a movie like uh again going back to Man, uh Miami Vice, which mm-hmm. for me personally does not work as a film. I think it's I, I think it's its reach exceeds its grasp, but it's an amazing looking film. It really is. It has yeah. an incredible uh, uh, cinematography. Uh, another film that and then <laughs> I'm going to probably get people when they hear this yelling at me that are friends of mine and family members, because I have family members that love this film. Um, there's a film called there's a film called Belly by Hype Williams. It stars the rappers DMX oh, and Nas. yeah, I remember seeing it's, that. Yeah. This is not a good film. It's, it has a lot of problems narratively. Uh, the, the plot is everywhere. I don't know what. It's one of those. I'm pretty good at following films. I'm, I'm the type of person that when they go see a movie, everybody gets angry at me because if it's a mystery, I figure it out. Like, like, yeah, hour in. I have a friend and, like that. Yeah, I'm <laughs> very rarely. <laughs> and so I didn't know what the hell was going on with Belly. I'm like, what is happening? And I need cliff notes. But that being that being said, it is the to me it is the it's visually it is the the zenith of the neon noir ideal because okay. he uses color constantly and in really interesting ways. the The movie starts with um, a, a credit scene where it's a uh, it's it's a negative. Uh, uh, he does a negative effect on the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it makes them look like they're glowing. Uh, and he uses black light incredibly well. There's a couple of scenes, uh, action scenes where like the bullets look like they're tracer bullets inside this mansion. Um, color is just all over this film, you know, mm-hmm. everywhere. And he did like the cinematographer is, does a great job. The story makes no sense, 
but <laughs> from an just just from a visualization aspect, it's amazing to look at. And I think for me, a lot of times, if a movie falls under the category of neon noir, I will sometimes give it a pass on plot. Yeah, excuse true. me, I'll give it a pass on plot <laughs> and, and characterization just because I want to look at it, just because it's pretty. It's it's a beautiful film to to see. It's a beautiful film to look at, and and I mean, I think that it, especially. I think there was a lot of that in the 80s uh, mm-hmm. just because of the nature. A lot of those films are dated in the way a movie like Thief isn't or a way a movie like Drive or Good Time never will be. Um, yeah. You know, I think Tequila Sunrise they were films gorgeous, of their time. But it is dated. But, yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Exactly. That's one of the ones I was thinking about. Uh, yeah. It's very much a film of its time period of the 80s or the early, early 90s. And so, like I said, they're beautiful films to look at, but they are so dated. Um, there's a film from Britain uh, mm-hmm. called The Hit. Uh, that's a beautiful oh, yes. film. It doesn't, it, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not so much neon noir. I guess you could say it's sunset noir. A lot mm-hmm. of sunsets in that movie. Uh, it's a beautiful yeah. film to look at. <laughs> but again, it's also, I think, very dated, a, very, uh, a film of its time. The yeah. Safdie brothers, though, to go back to good time, they fascinate me because they do something interesting. And I think that the newer filmmakers are doing this. They take the elements, some elements of the neon noir. The It's like they took 1970s New York and yep. updated it to 2010, 2020. And, it's, and they do, a, they're claustrophobic as hell. Like, they their films are, are so yeah. claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you like, can't get out. <laughs> good time, it, yeah. Yeah. You can't breathe. And it's like, you know, uh, good time. And they do this thing where they zoom in, they have very tight shots yeah. of the characters' faces. Um, yeah. Very castaways. Or right up front. Yep. Yes, and you just see their eyes and their mouths and the way, you know, the spittle flying off and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, very tight shots. Not a lot of sweeping vistas in Safdie's films. But because of that, it almost as if their films become neon noir by default. Because they do such tight filmmaking, they use such tight aspect ratio, you know, the colors and the lights are brighter. They have no choice mm-hmm. but to be because of the way they're filming the, the scene. And so, you know, the, the way the light reflects off of uh, Robert Pattinson's face, or the way the the um, like I said that I think like the uh, the uh, you know when they go to the uh, amusement park, mm-hmm. that's probably the widest shot ratio that they're using, and it's still this incredible uh, amalgamation of color and light and darkness and shadow and 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 reflective light, and it, it becomes almost like a fever dream, you know. It, it becomes does. almost it's like hypnotic. you're in this, yeah. It is. It is. And I think, you know, they, I I like, uh, I've seen Uncut Gems like twice now. Mm -hmm. I like Uncut Gems a little bit more than Good Time. Okay. Um, If my, (laughs) I think Howard, he's just as despicable as uh, Connie. Connie. I just felt a little more sympathy for Howard. Oh, absolutely. He really is. Yeah. He's just terrible. (laughs) He's just as, horrible guy and i just I, I wanted him to get caught i was look i wanted ray to kill him i was like kill his yeah shoot his ass that's it <laughs> let's end it but, know, uh, yeah. i think all these films have in common go ahead oh go i was ahead. just gonna say what i love though is you can't stand connie like right at the beginning it establishes though 
his just intense love for his brother, but it's also because he mm-hmm. needs his brother. He can't be alone for sure. Mm-hmm. But I love that opening sequence, the whole opening of the movie. I don't know if it's like 10 full minutes, but I actually showed it to a friend mm-hmm. who wasn't sure they wanted to watch. And I just showed him the beginning. Like this is mm-hmm. what a safety movie is like. And they're like, God, my heart is racing. And it's like, yes, but I love how <laughs> the brother is um, seeing like a therapist who, asking him some questions to right yeah and then connie jumps in and gets him out of there and the man says you know god damn it connie and it's like he thinks he's protecting his brother who doesn't want to share there's obviously some issues with their grandmother who seems to be the only one in their Mm -hmm. life that maybe looked after them Mm -hmm. except for connie who is sort of we don't even know if he's older or younger but he's the right quote unquote responsible one. But what I do like about the movie is I guess I'm a sucker for sibling stories anyway. And I like some Mm -hmm. of the humanistic touches throughout, like just weird little moments, like when he's busting his brother or who he assumes is his brother out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. And he goes in this older person's room and helps them with juice of course then he has to drink the juice because he's an asshole but it's nice for Mm -hmm. a moment to see him kind of in you in that moment you see what he's probably done or the relationship he's tried to foster with his brother like looking after him even though his brother's in this mess because of him and so i love the cyclical nature Mm -hmm. of good time like at the beginning of the movie he gets his brother in trouble his brother is thrown in jail and it's almost inverted at the end of the movie and we're back again at the behavioral therapist's place uh the brother Mm -hmm. is out of jail now connie is in jail which is where he belonged and um, so I love that sort of inversion. And I'm also a total sucker for movies that kind of take place all in one night, except for that ending sequence, of course. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's something mm-hmm. about a great all in one night movie, sort of like an after hours or that kind of thing that just puts you yes. in you are here position and there's nothing like it. So yeah. I, I love, oh, no, I love ends, uh, but yeah, good time really spoke to me more this time for some weird reason. I'm not sure what I love films that take place. Like they're in a box, you know, everything yeah. happens within a 20 to 48 hour uh, time mm-hmm. frame. Um, yeah. Connie is funny. They're, like you were saying, the little touches, like um, as repugnant as them wearing yeah. masks that are supposed to like African-Americans. Yes. When he's helping Nick get the mask off. And Nick's yeah. freaking out. You know, he's having a moment and, and Connie talks him through it. Remember, you know, so that's how I told you, you can do it, you can do yes. it. And he helps him do it. Um, little touches like that, how he holds his hand at some points in their yeah. escape, you know, and, you know, and he boosts Nick up. He tells you, know, I couldn't have done this without you. Of course, we all know, yeah, you could have. Yes. You probably would have been better off without it. But like you said, he can't. Yeah, get another he can't be by Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Get somebody, you know, call up somebody else that you know to help you do yes. this. Um, it's it's amazing because again, it's the it's a different type of neo a different type of noir character. It's you know part of that neo noir movement, but also again within the confines of, of the neon noir aesthetic, Connie is different. He's he's not just this man. He's a man on a mission to get his brother out. Yeah. But he's a complicated person. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, 
it's he's not even anti-hero. He's just this parts of him are repugnant, but then yeah. he does something like give that old lady juice where you're like, damn it. Yeah, uh, I want to hate you, but there's a party that's kind of nice. I know. You know, like there's a scene again. It's 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 a little sketchy, but this scene when he gets the young girl to get the keys to her grandma's car, and yeah. um, they go to White Castle. Yeah. And the Ray character is like, when she gets out to go to White Castle to get the food, Ray's like, let's leave. And Connie, nope. he says, we're not going to leave. We're not going to ride around a stolen car. No. But really, there's a part of him that doesn't want to leave her stranded. No, not and, at all. And that's the thing. And she's coming you know, back. He, she's coming back. He couches yes. it. Right. He couches it in. We can't be riding around this hot car, but he doesn't want to be a, but so much of a jerk. You know, there's a limit yeah. to how much of a jerk he wants to be. And so that's what I think the Safdies do really well um, with it. And I'm interested to see what they do next, but what they do within their, um, you know, with the writing and the directing is take really horrible characters. Yeah. And maybe, like you said, you may not care, you may not be rooting for them, but you can't look away from them. You yeah, know, you, you understand you have to see them how a this little ends. more. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll bring up one more thing. Uh, uh, I'll bring up one more piece of media that's not a movie, but I think it's one of, if we're talking about the Neon Noir movement, I think something that had, a, again, going back to Michael Mann, um, the first couple of seasons of Miami Vice are just master classes in the use of color and light within that neon aesthetic. I mean, it's just, with, I think we talked about music earlier, but music's such a big part of that aesthetic as well. And, Absolutely. you know, Mann does it as well as anybody. You know, I mean, you know, scenes in Miami Vice where they're riding around, you know, I don't you know. Again, if you stop and think about Miami Vice, the movie or the film it may, or the TV show, it makes absolutely no sense. Why are these oh. undercover cops in this giant Lamborghini or Corvette? Why do they uh, use the same undercover names every episode? <laughs> like, yeah. Somebody yeah. would catch on to like, man, that's Sonny Burnett, dude. He looks a lot like that cop, Sonny Crockett. Why did he use the same first names? But anyway, um, they actually <laughs> do the though, look of that TV show, the way they do. Like I have a friend who, uh, well, they just retired, thank goodness, but they were undercover and you do keep mm-hmm. your first name just in case somebody you went to high school with or something comes ah. up to them and goes like Andrew or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> be blowing their cover. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. But Miami but, Vice yeah, the stretched, way that sh- <laughs> stretched the credibility yeah, yeah. a lot. But the, the way it looked, I mean, Miami already is a very vibrant uh, locale as far mm-hmm. as like color and interior and exterior design and the way the city is 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 laid out. And then, you know, Michael Mann and the, and the people at Miami Vice just, they turned that up to 11. Yeah. So everything is just, like I said, almost this bioluminescence in the every character, every setting, every scene, um, you know, so many scenes that take place in clubs or in bars or just at, at night driving down the strip. And uh, as a kid growing up in a small, very uh, monochromatic uh, Southern town, uh, movies, TV shows like Miami Vice and films like like uh, Thief and, and, and when I was a kid, Thief and, uh, you know, like you said, Tequila Sunrise and movies like that. Uh, and to a lesser extent of a film like Lethal Weapon or something like that, yeah. they just looked fascinating. It's like, I want to go there. I want to see, you know, colors. I want to see the world through that prism. And, uh, you know, that's what fascinates me about those films. You know, as much as I love films that are very emblematic of where I come from, I love to be exposed to films that yeah. take 
yeah, transported, but you know, expose the films that take places that I've never been and and create this longing inside me for those places. And mm-hmm. it's funny because like I said, I've I've been to uh New York and I've been to LA and it's funny to me. LA and New York look just like in real life, like they look on film. It's oh, <laughs> really? to me, it's it's like the yeah, like it's yeah, especially New York. New York, you know, you walk around in New York, you walk down like Forty uh, Second Street, and I feel like I'm in an episode of of uh, Law and Order. I feel like I'm in Q and A or or some you know, except a Lumet film. Yeah. Uh, and I think for somebody like me who didn't come from those backgrounds. It's endlessly fascinating, but oddly enough, I would never write something set in either one of those locations. I don't think I, as a writer, I have a very personal connection to my yeah. writing and I don't feel that personal connection to a place like New York or, or Philadelphia. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll write something that may have a scene or two in a place mm-hmm. like that, but I don't have as much of a connection. Uh, but I love, 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 love any type of film um, that's made in those two locations. And I find it just incredibly fascinating and invigorating when you watch a really well-made film um, that takes place in those two cities. And especially like with LA, which I think is the the home base or uh, it, it's the number one setting for a neon noir flick. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just such a beautiful city to look at. Um, and really filmmakers who are able to and filmmakers who are able to encapsulate that um, are really, I don't think everybody can do it. It's a, it's a very select group of filmmakers that know how to shoot LA and how to film it. And, uh, you know, you think about, um, you think about uh, to, to live and die in LA with, uh, you know, William oh, L. Peterson freaking. and uh, a really yeah. young Will. Yeah, Walter Freakin. Uh It's funny because I wouldn't classify that as a neon noir, although it, it has a certain aspect of that mm-hmm. aesthetic in it. Um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, William Defoe's girlfriend, and she's a dancer, like an experimental dance troupe. Oh yeah, that's and so right. they use almost like a moment shots. Yeah, they use like almost they do like almost a, a moment shots type of production uh, uh, in in parts of the film. Um, but it's very close to that aesthetic. It borders on that aesthetic, just because it's in LA, just because of the way freaking. Uh, frames his shots and the filters he's using in those shots. Uh, but films like that, even in that film, LA is this like beautiful sun drenched uh, oasis. You know, it's mm-hmm. like a, it's like a, it's like a, the island of the Lotus Eaters, but with you know blacktop roads and cars. And I think it's filmmakers that can do that. I, I, I'll always pay attention and I always stop and take a look. I think Man is probably Michael Mann is probably the the main progenitor of that in America right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the Safdie is right behind them. Uh, but anybody listening, like I said, uh, the new, uh, uh, you know, uh, the new Korean cinema, uh, the J- Japanese cinema has really just enveloped and really embraced that type of filmmaking um, in a way that I think filmmakers in America have moved away from to a certain extent. I think you're right. And you make a really good point. I think in the 70s with the marriage of sort of neorealist and French New Wave inspired filmmaking, people like, you know, Cassavetes and Scorsese. And then that marriage of that style of filmmaking with 
Miami Vice, the Scott brothers, both Ridley and Tony <laughs> work, which is highly visual. Mm-hmm. And those Simpson Bruckheimer movies, which again, some of those mm-hmm. were the Scott brothers movies, kind of <laughs> is the epitome of neon noir. And so it's interesting to see which filmmakers have taken it and done their own unique thing with it. And I think uh, the new Korean cinema is very exciting, as you said. And I wanted to thank you so much for choosing this topic. It was so much fun talking to you. But before we go, are there any movies you want to give a shout out to that we forgot to mention? Anything else you'd like to add? Um, uh, I think a couple of ones that are uh, maybe not. Uh, I mentioned Greg Gakari. He does incredible yeah. filmmaking, I think. Um this wouldn't really be neon noir, but I think it has a certain, it doesn't have the color palette, which I, I made a, it's like I set up the rule and I broke it, but uh, oh, Jim Jarmusch, fine. Night on Earth. Oh, <laughs> Jim, Jim Jarmusch's Night on Earth. Yeah. Yeah, Jarmusch, thank you. My mispronunciation. Oh, no. um, no, but uh, Night on Earth, Night on Earth has a certain, that, again, the color palette is, 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 is not as bright and, you know, day glow, uh, emphatic as a neon noir film, like, but it definitely has that sensibility, that aesthetic. And this one of my, I love that film. Night on Earth is a beautiful film. Um, so and yeah, he was try so to find that one. I think. by vendors. So yeah, this all ties together. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you can, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely see it. Yeah, you can definitely see his. He was really inspired by vendors. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Night on Earth is great. You you talked about Spring Breakers is another one that's really uh, it's 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 neon noir on on acid. It's really yeah. <laughs> it's turned up to twelve. Forget it. We shot past eleven. We're all the way to twelve. Yes. Um, and I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, again not a great film but a great no, looking film it's a great movie yeah. to look at uh, I think one that falls sort of in that category and I I can't believe I just thought of it I'm going to I'm gonna be real quick because I know we're running short on time but oh, um, The Counselor <laughs> The Counselor oh, again um, with Scott yeah, written by Cormac McCarthy Scott. yeah and with yeah with, it's, it's it is the to me, it's the it's the watershed moment between neon noir and the neo noir movement of the 20, 2000, yeah. 2010s. Mm-hmm. Um, because and then of course you take a Cormac McCarthy's, whether you want to call it his humanism or his nihilism, and that's a whole another discussion for another day. <laughs> but um, you're taking that and you're melding that all together in this into this pot that for me doesn't always work. But there are scenes that are just so influenced by tone and color and color palette and shading. You know the scene yeah. with the um, the scene with the Green Hornet and the uh, the Wire Man and uh, the scene uh, with the counselor when he's talking to his girlfriend. And of course, anybody who's seen the movie, and I won't go into too much detail, but anybody who's seen the movie, when, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know the scene I'm talking about. Yeah. Cameron Diaz <laughs> makes love to a car. Um, <laughs> but that way that, that scene is shot is disturbing and beautiful. It's like a mad symphony of incredible, Incredibly uh, uncomfortable uh, scenes, but married with Harvey R. Bardeem's almost hypnotic narration of the scene. Yeah. And also kind of funny. It's, it has a funny line in it. But that film, I, I will say this about that film. 
it's like I said, it's that it's a marriage of the neon noir aesthetic with a sort of Cormac McCarthy nihilism and Scott's uh, sort of gauzy, uh, 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 almost yeah. saccharine filmmaking to a certain extent. I say saccharine in visualization, not in tone. Oh yes. Um, but it's it's a movie. I don't like it, but I can't. I I think about it a lot. Is that yeah. sound? It's makes sense. Sticks with you. I just saw it for the first time actually because um, Blake Howard, hello Blake, actually chose it for our pandemic movie club, and I think you and I talked about uh-huh. it after I watched it. So yeah, even though I didn't yeah, like, yeah, love yeah. it, but it was still really interesting. Yeah. And I've thought about you know the necktie, that great ending, which is really gory, but really just a perfect way to end the movie. <laughs> and, um, I've thought about that. I always thought that was taken. That took. <laughs> took a little I always far. thought that took Chekhov's gun to the extreme. Yeah, yeah it took Chekhov's gun to the gun to the pure off. extreme. Yeah, yeah. I would say on the nose. I just felt but like they the brought neck. it up in the first part. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> they brought it up in the first part of the movie, and it's like it's almost like to me, and this is just me being a jerk. It's almost like they were writing it, and Cormac McCarthy was like, "Oh, we mentioned that weird garrote thing. We ought to bring that back." And it's like, yeah. "All right, I guess we'll go along with that." But um, but yeah, we're talking about aesthetics. I mean, it, it, it is. It's funny because there are scenes in that film that are incredibly washed out in a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. You know. Almost like a watercolor painting, yeah. and then there are scenes that are like I said, emphatically neon assisted, um, yeah. and lighting is almost uh, aggressively they're aggressively lit scenes. So yeah, yeah. check out the council. I, I can't believe I'm recommending it. I, I it just won this movie. I cannot stop thinking about it when I when somebody brings it up. So that's yeah. another film I like to mention. Um, and I think that's it. I don't think I've got anything else. I've run off at the mouth quite a bit. <laughs> oh no, this was wonderful. I want to thank you so much. Here, I'm worrying I'm taking up your afternoon. So I really appreciate this, Sean. It was oh, oh no, I love talking about films and and I love like I said that neon aesthetic man. It's a yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a funny thing real quick. So when I write, one of the things I do to get ideas is <laughs> I know people always see me as this, this big hoss of a guy, but I love Pinterest. I go on Pinterest all the time oh, and I pull fun, up pictures. It? Yeah. Yeah. And I pull up pictures of ideas that I'm trying to work on. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm writing, a, I'm working on a Southern Gothic novel. So I go in there and I type in Southern Gothic aesthetic and it brings up pictures that kind of inspire me, um, that help me develop the plot that I'm working on. Um, but uh, it's funny, I started a page, a Pinterest page or Pinterest board, I think it's the correct terminology, uh, called Neon Aesthetic. And it's just beautiful pictures from films like uh, uh, Drive, but also just art art that someone's come up with. A lot of that, um, and I'm, oh God, it's going to bug me. There's an artist from the 80s that was very famous. He did cover work for Duran Duran. His mm-hmm. motif is, he, he always draws very pale women with like bright lipstick and bright oh, hair yeah, i know that um, so, i can't think of the painter though yeah yeah and so I, I draw a lot of inspiration i like looking at like i just i'm very taken with that i love the interplay of, of colors especially either in art or in, or in cinema and so uh that really drives me i love anybody that has a film like that so anybody listening that has any uh suggestions on film that brought up that aesthetic you hit me up on twitter i'm always on there uh, acting a fool, as mom would say. No. But uh, no, this was great. Thank you so much for having me back. I really, really enjoyed it. 
This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.